Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired sufficient word says, For in it, that being the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We ask you, Almighty God, to teach us from this word, instruct us in it, correct us by it, and comfort it, comfort us with it, and that we would understand it and embrace it that it calls us to, and more than that, we would through this embrace the rock of our salvation, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is only able, only one able, to enable us obedience to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. That is the verse of Scripture that launched the Protestant Reformation on October 31st, 1517. When Martin Luther, a Catholic monk from in Wittenberg, Wittenberg, Germany, went and nailed his 95 thesis to the castle church at Wittenberg, saying that man is saved by faith alone, through grace alone. It is the most important day to have happened since the writing of the Apostles' Creed and prior to that, the writing and the giving of Scripture and the walking on the planet by Jesus the Christ. And so I want to title this message as such, and I just hand wrote it out, so I won't be reading it. Foundations of the ref- or Foundation of Righteousness. The Foundation of Righteousness. This passage in Romans 1.17 refers back to Habakkuk chapter 10 verse 38. And Habakkuk 10 verse 38 is mentioned three times in the New Testament. The first time, excuse me, it's Habakkuk 2.4. If you find Habakkuk 10.28, let me know. I need to look at your Bible. It's Habakkuk 2 verse 4. It appears here in Romans 1.17. It appears in Galatians 3.11. And it appears in Hebrews 10.38. It says in the passage, The righteous shall live by faith. Go over here with me to chapter 3 of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And notice what the Bible says. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Then go on over to chapter 9, verse 30. The Apostle Paul continues this thought and he says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. And then one other place is Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, and then I'm going to center in on two passages specifically of Scripture and preach from them. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. I can find it. There it is. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Martin Luther struggled deeply in trying to understand 
what the Catholic Church was teaching, the Roman Church was teaching at the time at which he was a monk and a preacher of biblical theology. He had read Romans and Galatians. He, had read, he was teaching the New Testament at the University of Wittenberg. He was a brilliant scholar, but there was a teaching in the church at that time that was a very interesting church that is believed by most Protestant denominations, even the largest one, and also the Romans. And this is what brought him to his breakthrough, was this very concept, and then the reading of this word. Luther's breakthrough was that God justifies the sinner. Now listen, God justifies the sinner, not by giving him the ability to become righteous, but by crediting the holiness, obedience, and goodness of Christ to him as righteous. At that time, the Roman church had taught that justification was an infusion, was an infusion, and that justification, all, all that it does is it makes a person able to choose whether or not to act in faith. That is the Roman concept to this day of the doctrine of grace. That God has given a person the ability, He has infused that person with grace and given them the ability to choose whether or not they will believe. Some Protestants do the same thing. That God has done something so that you are in a place where you can pray a prayer or observe something and as a result you then can have this experience of justification. But you will never know until you arrive at the judgment seat of Christ if you did what was done. That is all the teaching of infusion. Luther learns here in the introductory letter, in this letter to Rome, where Paul is writing to them in his introduction in the first 17 verses, how I long to come to you to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is the mediator, the king of this universe. He is the ruler of the universe and he rules as mediator right now. He rules as mediator on behalf of His people. What did He do? And how can we apportion what He did for us? And Luther came to the conclusion that the Bible does not teach an infused righteousness. It teaches an imputed righteousness. A righteousness that is imputed, not infused. God does not take, in other words, God does not take a man and give him the ability to choose whether or not he will exercise faith to be justified. He doesn't do that. What he does is justification is not a change in the man, I quote, but the gracious declaration of God by which he pronounces righteous the sinner who himself is not righteous. And in doing that passively upon a person, that person savingly confesses that revelation in faith. They cannot help it. They cannot resist it. They cannot not do it. It happens. It's an imputed righteousness. And so this is what happened. This is the moment, this is, he came to conclusion, and this is the very moment that it happened. And he tells this story, and I quote, The word righteous and righteousness of God struck my conscience as flashes of lightning, frightening me each time I heard them. If God is righteous, He punishes. But by the grace of God, as I once meditated upon these words in the tower at Wittenberg, the righteous shall live by faith. And the righteousness of God there suddenly came into mind 
the thought that if we as righteous are to live by faith, and if the righteousness of faith is to be for salvation to everyone who believes, then it is not our merit, but it is the mercy of God. And thus my soul was refreshed, for it was the righteousness of God by which we are justified and saved through Christ. These words became most pleasant to me, and through this word the Holy Spirit enlightened me in the tower where I read them, and suddenly the gates of heaven swung open for me, and I walked through. And he said, this message must be told. And so he wrote his 95 thesis, that man is saved by grace alone, not an infused righteousness, an imputed righteousness. Man is saved by the gift of God for the glory of God. And consequently, it was this passage the righteous shall live by faith as is testified from faith to faith. And it is the righteousness of Christ, not my righteousness. It's His righteousness. And so what is He ultimately talking about? He's talking about the evidence and the foundation of justification. How do you know that you're justified? How do you know truly that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and how do you know beyond your feeling or beyond other people's comparisons or testimonies how do you know and it is what Paul spent his entire ministry teaching so I want you to begin then with me in 1st Timothy I want you to begin there with me because I want you to see how, like then, today, there are many ways being taught. There are many ways being believed. There are many ways at which people are being told about this truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 through 7, follow along with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior in Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure at Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to, more, to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by what? Faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matter about which they make confident assertions. I want you to notice, first of all, in this text, he is told to remain there at Ephesus as the pastor. We know that he is establishing elders in churches, but he is to remain there, and he is to go about teaching or instructing or urging certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now I want you to notice, he doesn't give him permission to teach on all doctrines. He doesn't give him permission to teach all men. He says, where you are pastoring, there at Ephesus, I instruct you to teach certain men not to teach strange doctrine, and then I tell you not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. He says, don't teach, do not teach strong, strange doctrine and do not pay attention to myths and genealogies. 
It is a common thing in Christianity to spend all of our time looking for the speck in the eye. Discussions about all kinds of things that do not further the administration of God, which is by faith. It, is, it, it boils Christianity down to, one, an issue of intellectualism, two, dividing walls of different beliefs, and three, ultimately, carnality. It's what I call, uh, uh, um, yeah, it, it's just not right. I can't remember what I call it. Carnal speculation. Look what he says. The reason this happens is because men desire to desire to be teachers. They they in verses three and four he he's, he he says it gives rise to spirit speculations to speculation about things. Well, what about this and what about that? Instead of furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The just shall live by faith. And it tells us something in verse 6, that those who do these things, they are men straying from these things, and they have turned to fruitless discussions. And one of the things that happen is because they're so excited about this new revelation that they have, this fruitless discussion, they do not understand what they are saying. And he goes on to tell them they make confident assertions about matters in which they don't even understand. This is part and parcel what's happening today. Some of the largest churches in the nation are built not because a church was planted and a pastor who went there to feed sheep was sent by God to, to uh, bring in the harvest, but because someone may have a great podcast ministry or a great television YouTube ministry, and they decide, you know what, I can make some extra money. I'll get a congregation to come listen to me, and then they can take an offering, and then I'll make some money, and I can keep doing what I'm doing, and yet those sheep are cannibalized, and they're never, ever fed. And this is America Christianity. And, and they're falling left and right. The day's going to come when a church is going to be competing to have a full-time minister. Because guys are leaving the church. They're not committed to the church. A, shepherd, a pastor is committed to a congregation. Heck or high water. That's what a real pastor is. He's committed and he has to be a good soldier, which means he has to suffer. He doesn't quit because he can't feed his family. God said he'll take care of his family, his people. Hubert Wright once told me long ago, he said, God takes care of his men and he takes care of those who don't. Fortunately, Timothy here is a full-time man and he's going about, but I want you to see something. What, when they are going out there and teaching these things they don't understand, they don't have enough knowledge to be dangerous, Paul shows Timothy something in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 I'd like you to look at. This is what he says. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, and disputes about words, about of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness is actually a means of great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. You see, what is taking place here is similar to what was happening when Luther was there in Mainz where he was. They were teaching another doctrine. They were teaching a doctrine that was 
the straw that broke the camel's back. It's known as the doctrine of the indulgence. The reason that the Vatican City is there today is because of the indulgences of the Roman Church. And there was a man named Tetzel. And Tetzel went around with a box, a money box, and, an, and a suitcase full of indulgences. And he would go to places and he would set up a table, dump all of the indulgences out on the table, all these pieces of paper, and said, if you put a copper coin or whatever inside the coffer, then from it we will give you an indulgence and your soul will not go to purgatory. So there was a jingle. As soon as the copper coin rang from purgatory, a soul sprang. And that's how the Vatican was built. All of the money from selling indulgences. And Luther saw this and said, this is not how it works. Number one, there is no purgatory. The Bible doesn't declare that. And number two, Man does not have to worry about purgatory that doesn't exist because man is not saved by his works. He is saved by the imputed righteousness of Christ Jesus. And so he stood up against Tetzel. And thus he was hunted and hunted and hunted. And while he was in hiding in six months, he took the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible and turned it into the Luther Bible, the German Bible turned it into the language of the people for the first time. And thus the Reformation truly began to take place. He saw what the church was doing as what is happening today and what is revealed here by Paul to Timothy. Men who will not tolerate sound doctrine. Men who will not tolerate learning and being instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. People, even it's so bad that people think they have learned enough. There isn't enough to learn. I mean, it, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we're still going to be learning. All of the facets of it. And so Luther sees that in this problem is ultimately an error with the doctrine of justification in understanding it. So, that's why he says in Romans 1.17, not Luther, but the Apostle Paul says this word, and then I want to teach you about that. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So let me give you some things to remember about justification. The nature of justification is this. This is not hard. Justification is a legal act based upon the righteousness of God. Period. It's a legal act. It does not affect the condition of the sinner. It affects his state. A justified sinner is still a sinner. But before God, he has been justified. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imparted to him. And that is what he's to live in. And that's called justification. It's a legal action. It is a one-time act. It can only happen once. It is not a repeated act. It either hasn't or it has happened. It's a one-time act that is outside of the center and it takes place inside the tribunal of God. It's His decree. And so, He removes... This is what it does. Number two, from that point, He removes the guilt and the stain of sin from the sinner. One moment, it's done. And three here, it's completed once for all time. The just shall live by faith. The justified shall live by faith. Who are the justified? The justified are the ones who have received justification. The imputed righteousness of Christ Jesus to them through the gospel. They've received it. 
And there are two elements, and I love this. One element is this. Just write it down. One element is the forgiveness. And it's based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's forgiveness of sins. Past, present, and future. Total forgiveness. And number two, the adoption of God. The adoption of of you and I. the, The adoption of the sinner. The justified sinner by God as the children of God. Now this totally rang against the Catholic Church at that time. So what they did is they hunted down Luther to kill him because this is what he was teaching. They did not want this. This was going to wreck the racket. This was going to wreck the business. that They'd already started on the Vatican. You have to finish the project. We can't stop. We have got to keep the people in darkness. Don't put the word in their mouth. Don't make them believe that understanding truth is not important. True doctrine is not important. Put out there men that are deceptive for gain. Put out there men who bring about discussions that lead to endless genealogies and speculations because they will fall for it every time. That is the great battle of a pastor today because you all don't receive just one preaching in your life. You can get it any which way and you can find any person to say what you want. And so here was the point. They realized that the point of saving faith is the grace of God and that faith, listen to me, is the instrument. It's the instrument He uses. Faith justifies in so much as it takes hold of Christ. And last of all, It is a faith that is given. It is God-given. It is not a faith that that you can work up. It has to be a God-given faith. That's the imputed faith. No man has the ability to have enough faith in Christ to save himself. It has to be the faith God gives. Why? Because all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And consequently, we can't even believe without sinning because we have no ability to believe perfectly. We will still doubt. So to say, I have faith in Christ, must then be the result of one of two things. Either I genuinely have the faith of Christ that has been given to me, or I make God a liar and say, I have enough faith to make it happen. That all depends on whether you believe it's an imputed righteousness or an infused righteousness. The majority of my career has been practicing a concept of infused righteousness, not imputed righteousness. Just say this prayer, it's good enough. It's not. And Luther spent all of his time until this moment in the confessional, confessing to his confessor a man named Staupitz, which is a good name because I think he was ready for Luther to stop it. But his name was Stolpitz. And all he did, because Luther was terrified of the righteousness of God, he had an abusive father. He believed without a doubt he was going to go straight to hell when he died. And so he did everything he knew. If anyone could have done it, he could have done it. But he couldn't do it. And he came to the end of himself. He was literally, literally destroying himself. And it was when he read the book of Romans that he was refreshed. And this is ground zero. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So let me just tell you this. I want you just to write this phrase down. Justification lays the foundation. Justification lays the foundation for... Justification lands the foundation for living in relationship with Christ. Living in relationship with Christ and is the surest guarantee for a truly godly life. And is the surest 
guarantee for a truly godly life. But you see, if your church is based upon you having to go to purgatory or not do good enough, and thus there's a way to make you pay to become good enough, you can understand why they wanted to kill this man. He was wrecking the racket. And Luther did not set out to abolish the Roman church. That was not his... He wanted to see it renewed back to the Word of God. But as I've told you, Rome believes, and this is... this happened in 1200, 300 years after the, before the Reformation. The church is an authority over the Bible. The Bible is not the final authority. It's the church. And particularly that triangle of clergy, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, then the bishop of Rome, the pope, who speaks ex cathedra. When he speaks, he is speaking as God. And that's the teaching. And that's not an offensive thing for me to say that. If a Roman Catholic were in here, it'd say, Amen, that's the way it should be. And all of you journey people need to get on board. And so, go over here to James. Let me just run through this real quick, and I'll tie this into a knot. Because it's all going to make sense. It's not complicated. But I want you to look at James chapter 2. I told you that I wanted you not only to have the intellectual understanding of this, but the, the, the spiritual understanding. And here is how I'm going to illustrate it that will move you to the emotional believing, trusting, and assurance. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, it says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by the works. You believe that God is one, you do well, for the demons also believe and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And you see that faith has working with his works, and the result of the work, faith was perfected. And that the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, I was listening to a very, very famous person today that we're watching online and watching this man move from atheism to now at least deism and is speaking of the virtues of Christianity. He is reading the scripture and it's a matter of time that he will become a believer with no doubt to my mind. And he was asked this question the other day in England. Why will you not say I am a believer in God. Why will you not say, I am a believer in God? And, of course, he has a Ph.D. in psychology, so the answer, which would take one minute, took ten. And then he gave the answer in the last sentence. And he says, the way I read the Bible, I'm not supposed to tell you I believe in God. I'm supposed to show you. Talk is cheap. A sweet young lady at Cracker Barrel the other day seated me and I said, tell me about those crosses in your ear. She said, well, I grew up in a home. We believed, but we don't believe in the church. And the crosses just offered great comfort to me in, in my immediate response in my head was, do not look like you're startled or surprised at all. Because she is a person of peace. And I said, really? Tell me where you grew up. I didn't ask her about the cross. 
because there's more to come. But you see, that's a, that's a testimony. And it's a wrong one. How can you say you love your mother and you never go see her? And so the idea here is this, is that what James is teaching here is that faith is a matter of deeds and words, not some, not for a formal display or a formal display, but for practical use. The very faith you have is for practical use. And, is, and, and what does the writer of James say? He says, you have faith and I have deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And so I want you to notice that the two are integrated one working for the other. Faith is, write this down, faith is warm-hearted belief, not a frozen intellectual position. Faith is a warm-hearted belief, not a frozen intellectual position. It is an energy born of God. It is an energy born of God, the work of God, and it is donated to us by God's grace. How do we know this? Because in the passage it says the demons believe and they tremble. But we know they don't have faith because God has not given them faith. That's why they're demons. So it's not a matter that you can say you believe. It is a matter that you have this faith. And the illustration that he uses here is our father Abraham from Genesis 22. And our father Abraham, who was known as the friend of God, believed God so much that it was accredited to him as faith. And therefore God said for Abraham's benefit, he was going to demonstrate for Abraham that indeed he had a faith that God had given him that he himself had not worked up. And so he said, I want you to go sacrifice the promise I gave you. And what does Abraham do? He goes and does it. Abraham goes and does it. You can't do that. That's not humanly possible to do that unless your faith is given to you from above. Your justification is alien. Alien justification. Your faith is alien. It comes not from within your strength. It comes not within your own reliability. And that's how Abraham did it. And, but he had already been credited as a man of faith and as a man of righteousness before the binding of Isaac. So why did he then have to go bind Isaac? To prove to Abraham. To prove to Abraham himself that he believed God. God already believed. And there's much more to do that. And so he is called the friend of God. And he was willing... Now listen, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son to please God. So this then means I need to ask you a pastoral question. What are you not willing to sacrifice to please God? No one here is being asked to sacrifice their son. That is kind of where you find out how deep your faith is. True faith, brothers and sisters, write this down. True faith is received from God. And because it's received from God, it is acted upon to please God. It is acted upon to please God. Martin Luther, when he came to believe, he was a hunted man until he died. And he was even brought before the emperor of Rome and told, recant what you have said and we will let you live. Revocare or revoco, recant. And he said, I can neither by conscience, nor, which would be dangerous, nor by the clear conviction of Scripture, 
recant these truths. Here I stand. And in that very moment that he said that, they could have burned him. But he could do no less because he knew he had been appointed for that day and there was, he had come to the level of faith by which God gave him. There was nothing he was not willing to do except please his God. That is what the Protestant Reformation made for us. And look today how it is so messed up. You go to church to learn how to wiggle out of your problems. You go to church to learn how to do this. You go to church, you hear some dumbed-down message because some guy has a bunch of tattoos and was a famous baseball player won the national championship or you go to church because of this or you go to church because of that because they don't step on your toes. Listen, Luther started what brought about the bringing of the Scripture to people because the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And the people that are believers today are believers because of this great moment where the Bible became so readily available and it is the power of God unto salvation. And those of whom God wishes to give this faith to, He gives to, and since it is received from God, then therefore it is to be acted upon for the purpose and the pleasure of God and nothing else. And so, what has happened then? Luther demonstrated with his life not that he, not with words that he believed in God. He demonstrated with his life that he did. He believed all the promises of God and devoted his whole time until it was done that he wrote the Scriptures. And by God's grace, I have been able to stand in the room and see the chair and see the table where he did it. In Wartburg, Germany. So let me then give you, go back to 1 Timothy and show you the goal then of this instruction. This has not been a vain jangling. Look what Paul says to Timothy. This is a letter to a pastor. This is not a letter to a, 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 a bivocational pastor. This is not a letter to an ordained man with another job. This is a letter to a man whose sole existence is the propagation and the building of the church. That is his occupation. Look what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandments of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. What do we know about faith? The justified will live by faith. They won't talk by faith. They will live by faith. How can they do that? Because the faith has been given to them from God. And that kind of faith is a faith that causes a person to want to please God with that faith. And look what he does. This is the rest of the story. He says this, verse 5, Our goal of this instruction to you, Timothy, is love. Our goal to you, Timothy, of this instruction is love. And it comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, these are the attributes and signs of saving faith. Here they are. 
a purified heart. There is no heart trouble in heaven. Did you know that? All of you that have taken statin drugs or whatever else, have stents, no need for those in heaven. There will be no heart trouble in heaven. From a pure heart, a good conscience. What can make your conscience whiter than snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I get up this morning. In the morning time, it is not a good time for me. I wake up and the phrase is, don't poke the bear. It's 530 it's time to make the donuts. I go into the bathroom, do what you do in the bathroom, and then I get on the scale, and I'm holding the scale, taking some pounds off before I let it settle in on its lie. And then I'm going to walk out the door, go to the kitchen, turn on the espresso machine, come back into the bathroom, curse the scale because it's a liar, and pour my bath. But before I even get off the scale and have it giving me the true reading, in comes Bridezilla, I mean Kelly. And she said, the water heater doesn't work and we're out of gas. I said, don't poke the bear. And I just turned off the bathroom stuff, got back into bed, put on my blanket, said I'm not going to church today, I'm mad because I just talked to the gas company, all this, they owe us money, which is a first anyone ever has. They owe us money, and, well, I go online, and then I go into this defense mode, and I wake Kelly up, although she's not asleep. She's totally awake with 500 more questions. And I show her, look at this credit. I, this is when I emailed him. It says we have 50%. I said, we're out of gas, or else Robert has come over and repossessed the water heater I haven't paid him for yet. <laughs> Listen to me. Listen to me. So I wake somebody up on a call service, explain it, and then grab all of my clothes before she can ask me any more questions and run up here as fast as I can because I have a shower up here and got cleaned up. I don't have on any deodorant, but I did bathe with dial. But the whole way up here, I was asking myself, why did you get angry about it? Why are you angry because it happened? Are you ashamed? Do you believe Kelly doesn't want good for you? Do you believe that, and in that moment, that, didn't, that wasn't a consideration. There was no hot water. That's all that was wanted. And, and pretty boy's got to wake up. He hadn't even used shower yet. Did you even take one? Because you know what? The gas man came and said, your last gas man quit, and I never came over here and filled you up. I'm so sorry. So that's, I, I told her it wasn't my fault, but I am responsible. But this is what I want you to understand. So I'm sitting here. I mean, I, I spoke some French to myself in the mirror and all those kind of things, and I'm sitting there going, you know, why are you, why are you doing this? You're a minister of the gospel. You're a Christian. But it was driving up here, I have to remember the great phrase, Simel Ustus et Peccator. Martin Luther said in his teaching on justification at his table talks, simultaneously, sinner and justified. And my identity is not based upon whether I have gas in the water heater or not, or my fit of rage that I had for myself because I was truly embarrassed. I am who I am because God has said the just shall live by faith. And in that moment, I had not forsaken my flesh, but I, my faith, but I had honored my flesh. And so that's what a clean conscience is about. And then look at the last thing. A sincere faith. You cannot have a sincere faith and believe wrong things. With this caveat. It would have to be this caveat. We all believe wrong things. But 
It was you cannot have a sincere faith and believe wrong things and be unteachable. If you're teachable, then we will come behind and help you push that boulder up the hill. And if you fall into error, we will run and try to help you stop that boulder from going down. So here's what happens. Look how Paul addresses him then. This is the conclusion. Verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy was willing to give his life to go preach at the first Corinthian church and went throughout the ancient Near East preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that the just shall live by faith. His life was not about any other business than that. That was the life he was called to. This man James, who was the pastor of the big church at Jerusalem, wrote the book of James. And he says, you have faith, good. I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Because the faith that God has given me is a faith that lives with a clean conscience that is sincere and a pure heart and is one that is noted by its deeds for the pleasure of God. And then 1,500 years later, an obscure monk reads something that has changed the world. The just shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, this is a great and glorious truth because faith is so important and because from faith, which is given by grace for eternal life, God doesn't even require you to provide the faith to believe His Son is the Messiah. He gives you the faith that will believe His Son is the Messiah. And He gives you the faith to commit your life to become living sacrifices. The man that I read the most, William Still, the pastor of 52 years of a church in Aberdeen, Scotland, says it is in the first paragraph of his book entitled, The Work of a Shepherd. He says these words, it is the primary task of the local pastor to prepare his congregation as sheep who are willing to sacrifice themselves on the altar of God. And you know what? When you have this faith, you will. Come what may, even so, Lord, come, but make me a vessel. Let my light so shine before men, because I will tell you the awesome truth. There is no greater story than not only that Jesus saves us, Jesus gives us everything we need to secure it. And He didn't infuse me with it. He imputed me with it. And may I be induced with it in the kingdom to be all that He has planned for me to be, and you as well. Happy Reformation Day. If you come this afternoon to my home and you watch the Luther movie, you will see every bit of this come together. Now, I didn't watch the Luther movie and write this. I just sat down at Cracker Barrel and wrote this because it's what the Bible reveals. And uh, so I offer it up to you and to the Lord for His glory. Let's bow our heads.